Hey listeners, quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without s- sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting Mobile. Mobile that makes sense. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric Waltigans. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And we're back for another exciting episode. Gavin, take her away with what you got for us today. All right, Eric, I'm really excited for this one. Ooh. I am really excited this is one of my very favorite stories, top three of all time favorite mob stories. Very cool. So you're on, everybody, you're in for a treat. Yep, I love this one. And I, I will say up front, so when I wrote the Milwaukee Mafia book, the white-covered book, the full-length book, uh, so that was my first full-length book, and I didn't know a lot about writing at that point. And I didn't understand that there's a really important thing that you have to ask your publisher, and that's, hey, what's my word count? Because they usually have sort of a length they're looking for because they can only have it so long or so short to kind of meet like their target price, that kind of thing. Well, I didn't know that at the time. And so when I wrote that book, I ended up way, way over writing and then they told me like, oh, we were looking for this many words and you wrote this many words. And I don't remember what the numbers are now, but I ended up having to cut a large amount of material. Almost a third of the original book wow. was gone. So just out of curiosity, what was the page length of, or I guess you probably I really wouldn't. Don't, I really don't remember, but there were um, at least three chapters that were removed entirely. Holy cow. And then, you know, I had to trim down the rest of it. And that's what a hundred and fifty page book. So if they you had to, oh, uh, that one's actually longer than that. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. All right. So what is the topic? Okay. So this is one of the a reason that whole intro there is this is one of the chapters that got cut, and I wish it wouldn't have, but it didn't fit in with the rest of the with the rest of the book. This is the Levere Redfield heist. Okay. Yeah. So Levere Redfield, this guy's born in Utah. And he starts out as a poor potato farmer. He's in Idaho making his way, farming his potatoes. He's barely scraping by. Uh, He's in the Great Depression, just not making any money off of his potatoes. He meets and marries the love of his life. In 1931, they move to a neighborhood just outside of Los Angeles. He's dead broke. But within four years, he goes from dead broke to being a multi-millionaire. Wow. He moves to Reno, Nevada, and he makes his money off of real estate. He was pretty smart. He bought up all kinds of land around Lake Tahoe. And you've heard of Lake Tahoe. I've heard of Lake Tahoe. I couldn't tell you anything about Lake Tahoe. But you've heard of it. Yes. But at this time, nobody had heard of it. So he was smart, and he bought up all this land. He says, this is going to be a place. And he was right. So within four years, he became a multimillionaire because he got there first, started selling off the lots. He also made his millions because he was cheap 
cheap, cheap. <laughs> he would go to the grocery store and he would haggle with them over the price of a can of soup. <laughs> wow. He would say, oh, this can of soup, 50 cents, I'll give you 40. And apparently he was successful in that and he would save his pennies. Even after he became very rich, he still was known as a guy who would wear jeans and uh, a big cowboy hat. But uh, never, you know, he's making millions. He could be wearing fancy suits. Never does it. He's wearing mm. jeans the rest of his life. So this is our, our buildup. And then, of course, you got to ask at some point, what's this have to do with Milwaukee Mafia? That's a great question. Okay. They come into play years later, February 1952. There is a 400-pound safe that contains somewhere between one and a half and two and a half million dollars in currency, securities, and gem. The safe is stolen from Redfield's 15-room mansion in Reno, Nevada, while he and his wife were out playing a game of roulette. Who do you think took the safe? Probably the mafia. Even no. though we're in Reno, Nevada? Yes, but but from my extensive knowledge of the Milwaukee mafia, I know that the Milwaukee mafia was very closely tied somehow to gambling in Nevada. So they had That's st- true. strong connections. That is a true story. Okay, so the thieves got around the house without making any noise because they were able to feed Redfield's dog uh, a ham bone that they found in the refrigerator. There was a battered suitcase containing another $1 million in securities that was overlooked. They didn't find that while they were raiding the house. When asked about the incident after the fact, Redfield told the reporters that he had been pretty stupid to keep so much money in his house. (laughs) He was still surprised that anyone was able to find the safe in its inconspicuous position that only he and his wife knew. The hiding place was in a front bedroom closet buried beneath suitcases and clothing. I'm not feeling sorry for myself, he said. As for insurance, well, that's another foolish thing I didn't do. (laughs) They can have the money as long as they didn't kill my little dog. (laughs) Reporters asked Redfield what his dog's name was. Well, I can't tell you that, he said. He's really ashamed of the name. (laughs) Redfield's a strange guy. We'll say that. The only clue left behind was a soap wrapper that came from the St. James Hotel in Davenport, Iowa. The police said the burglars sometimes used soap to plant explosive charges. Which, I don't know how that works, but if someone knows, please tell me. I'd love to know how soap is used in explosives. Um, In this case, they didn't think that was the case. They actually thought that maybe they used the soap to kind of push the safe out. Because the entire safe was removed from the house. It wasn't just broken open. So the soap might have been used to kind of... How heavy did you say this? 400 pounds. Wow, that's... That's quite a project. It is quite a project. I mean, it's not the heaviest, but still, yeah. Neighbors saw nothing except for a badly scratched up dark green pickup truck. And they didn't think anything of it. They thought, oh, you know, maybe someone's doing some work on the house. Police initially took a wrong turn. They named five suspects publicly to the newspaper who they thought committed the burglary. But none of the five turned out to be correct. So they were off on the wrong track from the very beginning. They saw some people who they thought were suspects head off towards San Francisco. So they're they're searching San Francisco. Nope, nope. Wrong direction. Well, what could have been the perfect crime quickly unraveled on Monday morning when brunette cocktail waitress Leona Mae Giordano tried to use a $1,000 bill from the burglary at a blackjack table. The money changers were on the lookout 
for the dollar bill, scanning serial numbers from the burglary. Now, $1,000 bills, uh, not super common. Yes. <laughs> so it's uh, if you know which serial numbers to look for, uh, you can keep your eyes up pretty easy for that. Um, used to be more common than they are now, I think. I mean, I've never seen one in real life. Yeah, I didn't. wouldn't even believe that they existed really anymore. Maybe they don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah. At this time, they did. And so, yep, that was probably not the right place to take it because they realized right away that she had some of the loot. Well, the casino manager there was a man named Mert Wertheimer. He was a Detroit native who had previously operated the Chesterfield Club in Detroit. He had known some questionable guys back in the day in Detroit, uh, gangsters like Joe Adonis and Meyer Lansky. So um, if anybody knows those names, these are these are guys that this guy was familiar with. So he wasn't anyone to mess with either. So they asked the waitress, hey, where'd you get this bill from? And all she would say was, some guy in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the FBI arrived, and she broke down, she started crying, and eventually she remembered the name of the guy from Milwaukee. His name was Andrew Young. Now, she also had $5,000 of the loot on her, so she turned over the $5,000. So they got back a little bit of the money. money. Andrew Young is picked up by the FBI. A few days later, he's held in jail on $50,000 bond. He was in his underwear and unarmed at the time the FBI showed up. So he surrounded pretty quickly. He wasn't going to run off in his underwear. He refused to talk to FBI agents or explain how $600 in bills got into his work clothes pockets, despite the fact that he claimed to be unemployed. <laughs> his wife said he couldn't have been involved in the heist. He had been in the hospital at the time. He was having abdominal surgery. She told the press, I don't know why people always pick on him. Every time something goes wrong, they figure he did it. Now, granted, he had a long reputation before this. Uh, he had served 12 years in an Illinois prison for armed robbery. He had received a life sentence in Wisconsin for the murder of a of a employee of the Kohler Company in Sheboygan. Uh, of course, this life sentence wasn't really life because he's back out. Yeah. He denied committing the crime and stuck with that story. So after only about 15 years, he was pardoned by the governor. Yeah, so this guy, robbery, murder. On another case, he's caught possessing what was called burglary tools, which could be any number of things. It's kind of a vague description. Yeah, not, not the best guy. A few days later, door-to-door soap salesman. Here's where the soap comes back. <laughs> Door-to-door soap salesmen John Trilliegi and Frank Sorrenti were arrested. Now, these guys were actually in the hospital getting, getting ready for back surgery. They were cousins, and they both needed back surgery. Weird. Yep. Trilliegi had formerly owned the Riviera Tavern in town. He had originally been born in Omaha, but grew up in Milwaukee. Uh, he was a known gambling addict. He was a member of the Ogden Social Club. And the Ogden Social Club was this thing in Milwaukee where they had ga- a gambling house that would change houses every night. So like the club wasn't really a club. It was like every day somebody else would host the game. 
Um, and it was a big, big high stakes game. Like it was, they'd have roulette tables and craps tables and everything else. So it wasn't just like a friendly game of poker. And it was just people were doing it right out of their house. Yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And this is, this was in the Italian neighborhood. So a lot of mob guys were raking in money off these gambling games. Uh, he also had history on his rap sheet of auto theft, burglary, statutory rape. Um, he had actually been arrested in Appleton, Wisconsin at one point. Wow. Under the charge of, and I do not know what this means, the charge of selling inferior soap. <laughs> what? So apparently there were some kind of state statutes that set, you know, what had to go into soap, and he was not meeting the qualifications of a good soap. Wow. <laughs> so that's this guy. His cousin had actually no notable prior record. So he's kind of just like a, who knows? But they were quickly connected, thanks to Andrew Young, they were connected to the heist, what the newspapers were now calling the biggest burglary in the United States history. Now, the two cousins initially denied any involvement, though they did say, well, you know, we were in Reno at the time. (laughs) They were held in the county jail on a $50,000 bond, and the FBI believed that what had happened is the three men had driven from Milwaukee to Reno in Trilliegi's 1951 Cadillac, and they had gone there to apply for positions at the local casino there to work as car dealers, which did not work because their records did not let them work <laughs> in a casino. Believe it or not, casinos have standards of who can work there. So if you have, have a history of burglary and murder and rape... It's... Don't seem like the best kind of people to have working in, in a casino. no. No. I mean, there's some questionable people who hang out at casinos, but you don't want people who are known for stealing your money to (laughs) To be in charge of the money. Money at your casino. Yeah. Now, there's some debate over whether or not the Redfield job really was the biggest burglary. Uh, There's a more famous case just a few years prior uh, called the Brinks job. A few people maybe have heard of that if you're into crime. Um, a Brinks building in Boston was robbed of $1.2 million in cash and $1.5 million in checks, money orders, and other securities. Uh, that heist was called The Crime of the Century. And actually, there's four movies based off of it. So a uh, pretty big deal. And I'm sorry, did you say how much money it was for? Um, together, about $2.7 million. So it's right in the same ballpark. Same the- Same ballpark. Now, uh, on a technicality, Redfield would be the bigger burglary because it was a burglary, and technically the other one was a robbery, not a burglary. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those who don't know the difference, a robbery is like you actually put a gun to somebody and demand money, and a burglary is when you go in a building when nobody's there. Uh, So there's there's four movies for the Brinks job. There are zero movies for the Reno Heist. Um, if anybody wants to make a movie, I will help you. Um, <laughs> let me know. I, I've got a, a lot of story here. Uh, so when asked for comment on the arrest of these men, Redfield told the press, well, well, by gosh, that's all right. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? He then laughed and added, well, they haven't found the safe yet, have they? Did they find the money? <laughs> so... I, I can't do it in the voice he does it. It's a strange guy. The case takes a new turn yet again a few days later. A French-Canadian artist-slash-writer named Marie Joan of Arc 
Mashad is arrested uh, boarding the California limited train on her way to Chicago. She had with her $50,000 of the stolen money, 28 pieces of jewelry valued at over $25,000, and a package containing numerous securities, including 179,000 shares of stock in 57 different corporations. She was charged with conspiracy and held on a $100,000 bond at the Flagstaff, Arizona jail. She reportedly huddled on her jail cot and screamed hysterically in both French and English when she was not able to sleep. Mashad had been a frequent guest at Redfield's home, and he told the press he was shocked and greatly upset by her arrest. I trusted her implicitly. At the same time she was arrested, agents were pulling a smashed and empty safe from a small mine 10 miles south of Reno. So they found the mine. They seem to have found a lot of the money on this woman's person now. How is any of this connected to anything? So Mashad was transferred from Flagstaff to Reno, and she told the newspaper that, yeah, she was the one who masterminded the theft. She was the one in charge of it all. She said, I told the men who took the safe they were not to harm anyone, not even the dog. They were to be unarmed. I'm very sorry about the shame to my family, but I was always thought to be generous to everybody, and I thought the money should be placed in circulation. I knew the only way to hurt him was through his money. Now here's some dispute of how this all went down. According to the French-Canadian woman, she was having an affair with Redfield. Okay. So... She knew where the safe was because she had been in his bedroom. And at one point in time, I don't know, maybe he went to the bathroom or something, but she looked and saw this safe hiding in his closet. Well, he denies this. He's mm-hmm. like, no, that never happened. I don't know how she knew where anything was. I just, I've known her a little bit because I've seen her hanging around the casinos. So he denies any of this. All right. Um, it starts coming together that whether that's, true or not she's definitely the one who put things together she was friends with a prize fighter a boxer who also lived in reno who was formerly from milwaukee and she said hey this guy that i've been hanging out with he's worth millions of dollars and the guy doesn't trust banks so he keeps all his money in his house and the boxer's like well i know some guys who could help you out and the boxer knows some questionable people back in milwaukee Uh, I don't know the details of how he knows them, but it is worth pointing out that in the early days of boxing, the 30s, 40s, uh, boxing was more or less run by the mob. And that's very true in Milwaukee as well. Um, There was a thing called the Badger State Boxing Club, which was very uh, mob heavy. And uh, so if you boxed in Milwaukee, the promoters in charge, the people who, you know, paid you to fight uh, were mob guys. Or funded by the mob, probably. Or funded by the mob. So uh, somewhere along the way these connections are made, this guy contacts Milwaukee, Milwaukee. Uh, These two guys hear about it. Somehow Andrew Young, who is not a mob member, not Italian, as you can tell from the the name. He seems like a really oddball in this whole scenario. Yeah, don't don't know how he gets mixed up in this, but maybe they just know him as, you know, a crazy guy who will do anything because he's got this history of you know, armed robbery and murder. They're definitely not someone you want to mess with. So they know him from somewhere and he gets mixed up in it. This goes to trial and there's there's some uh, some interesting moments at trial. Please tell me that no, 
people get arrested for this, they don't get away with this, right? <laughs> they they do not get away with this. Okay. Well, we hear that too much on this show, so that's <laughs> No, nope, this one this one they actually get in trouble, but there is again there's that dispute between how how the uh the woman found out about it, which plays into her defense. I mean, cuz She's kind of she tells this story, which is not very believable, but she tells this story that basically he told her she could have the money, and nobody believes that, but you know, but he's going the other way completely, not even saying that they had an affair that she's never even been in the house and based on the what you told me about the story, I have to me personally for would take it that somebody involved in this knew about the safe had been in the house knew where the safe was knew the size of the safe because i don't i think you don't come ready to rob somebody Mm -hmm. and are prepared to move a 400 pound safe out of the house right you know it just that just doesn't happen no i agree and i think i think there's some middle ground in there i don't think it was as simple as she hangs around the casino and he told her that he keeps all his money in a closet in his house. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's something that she overheard. But I think there's something more in the middle where there might have been something questionable going on and she was in the house. Yeah. Um, but, I, but again, I don't believe the other direction either, where I don't believe where he's like, oh, you know, if you don't tell my wife, you could have all this money. Yeah. I don't quite buy that story either, especially not if she has to hire guys to come and steal, steal it. it. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely something doesn't add up there. So I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, yep. So, okay. So the people involved are sentenced to prison. How long do you think they got? Hmm. Well, back then... Remind me time frame. What is this? This is the fifties. The fifty. Okay, so it's later. I'm gonna say fifteen years. Mm, you overshot it. Really? Yep. Wow. Okay. Nope. They were sentenced to five years, and they were out in two. Wow. And, <laughs> and did they end up? I. You probably said this, but I can't remember. Did they end up recovering all the money, or did a whole bunch of the money just? A lot get, of the money they don't. They don't know where it went. went it just got. Well, and they probably like they got nothing off the guys in Milwaukee. So whatever they brought back to Milwaukee, they never got a penny off those guys. So interesting. So, so, yeah, so these guys, uh, five years, they're released in two. Andrew Young, even though he's got this history of murder, he's actually out after 20 months, so less than two years. Um, why he was let out so early, I don't know, because <laughs> very shortly thereafter, he's rearrested as part of a safe burglary ring with some other people who had gone around breaking into safes in Beloit, Fond du Lac, Manitowoc, and Appleton. <laughs> So poor Appleton. Poor Appleton. Appleton. Yep. So Andrew Young, yeah, should not have probably been let out so soon. Uh, Trilliggy will probably come back uh, again in a future episode because in 1958, the FBI creates what is called the Top Ten Hoodlums list, and then each each office of the FBI had to come up with their ten biggest hoodlums, which is basically their way of saying mob members. And Trilliggy ends up making their top 10. So they put some extra special focus on him later on. Just, I want to go back 
to something you just said. Did you say sure. that the person that had gotten arrested all the times for breaking into safes was Andrew Young? Yep. So that's probably the connection there. That's why they brought him into this project because he had experience with breaking into safes. It would seem that way. Like, yeah, he's he's part of this safe burglary ring after the fact, but that but doesn't mean he wasn't doing it before. Yeah, and you yeah. would assume you would assume if this was. If this Nevada thing was the first time he'd ever tried to break into a safe, I wouldn't consider him experienced in <laughs> breaking into a safe. So I'm going right. to guess he probably had a history of doing this, and that's how he got brought into it. Yeah, I mean, and that's – I think that's generally the case. If somebody gets arrested for, say, five burglaries, they probably did ten. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty much that. Uh, one, one final bit, unless you got a question – well, uh, one thing I kind of am curious about with this. So this almost sounds like a, a, a situation where somebody knew somebody who knew somebody that brought the mafia into this project. Yeah. And I'm just curious to, I feel like this is an organized organization that's sure. doing this. Sure. So could this have been just these guys going out and doing you know getting a is this really a mob job or could somebody have just reached out to two mob members and said hey we need help doing this do you want to well cuz so here's here's how that works if they were following the rules mm-hmm. they should have alerted somebody that they were going to do this and then when they got back kicked up a percentage of the money to their superiors in the mob. That is how it is supposed to work. Of course. Now, I don't know that what actually happened. It could have been they got this call from their boxer friend in Reno, mm-hmm. and they said, eh, screw it. You know, We'll just do this over the weekend. Nobody ever has mm-hmm. to know. Because um, if they didn't get caught, I mean, who knows they have this money? I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. So it's it's a mob heist in insofar as these two guys are Milwaukee mob connected. Yeah. But whether or not the mob knew they were going to do it, I don't or like know. Sanctioned it or whatever terminology you want to use. This could be could have been a rogue operation. It could it could have been not deeply embedded into the mob. Correct. Correct. And and the and actually now that you mentioned it, it's funny because a lot of times the reason you're supposed to clear it isn't just because money is going to get passed on, like that's the rules you're supposed to pass the money on. You kind of have to clear your targets too. Because Redfield, so far as I know, had no mob connections whatsoever. But could have. But could have. Yes. And, you know, maybe he was in tight with a mob guy who operated a casino Mm -hmm. and if this mob guy finds out that his buddy just got burglarized that guy's going to be pissed yeah so you know sometimes you should clear things to make sure you're not hitting somebody's house or business that has some buddies that are already mob guys yeah and and for all all intents and purposes this redfield could have been feeding money to the mob for some reason and it's like don't go steal the money that the guy's already paying to us go steal it from somebody else right and i don't and i don't think he was i have no evidence whatsoever about that but 
Um, but yeah, you should at least check. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, I don't, I don't think they did. Or again, if they did, this was all behind the scenes. Nobody higher up ever was named mm-hmm. connected to this at all. So it could have been a rogue operation. I don't know. It's an interesting. It's always the problem with the mob stuff. Is you know that that isn't. They don't make that public. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the the mob boss is not going to be not going to go out and have a press conference and say, "Yeah, we didn't sanction this operation." Right, right. These guys, these guys get caught, and then their boss comes up. They're like, "Yeah, we did not okay that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the problem. Is a lot of times, like you have to connect the dots, and sometimes there's no dots to connect, and you have to assume, and you shouldn't assume, but you kind of have to. <laughs> it's a very tricky thing, and I don't like to make connections that aren't there, Mm -hmm. but you have to speculate a little bit. It's part of the game. Um, Any other questions? No, I think I'm good. Okay. We're we're getting pretty high on time. Okay, so I do got the one little wrap-up. Okay. Okay, so Redfield, he's had all this money stolen from his house. Do you think after this incident he puts his money in the bank? No. You are correct. Yes. People that don't use banks, and this is not against anybody that doesn't use a bank, but I feel like if you get to the point where you're not using a bank, you'll probably never use a bank. The experience that got you there, the superstition is so strong that you just won't ever use a bank again. Yep. So he ends up dying in the 1970s, and they go in there to you know handle his estate or whatever, and... On top of whatever else was inside that house, they found 400,000 silver dollars. <laughs> so he had 400,000 coins, silver dollar coins, just sitting in bags in his house. Um, when I, Well, obviously he had 400,000 silver dollars, so he, I would assume that was an exuberant, a huge amount of money for that time. I, but, I assume he had a lot more money than that, but the fact that he had just that many, how much right. money in silver dollars? I'm curious, how bad when they did this robbery, do you know how much his net worth was? Like, how much did they wipe him out? By He didn't seem really worried about it, so it must have been just a drop in the bucket for him, mm-hmm. right? Because you read a couple things there where they he was talking, and he was like, well, I'm just glad they didn't kill my dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it wiped him out, yeah, probably would have been a little more upset. Yeah, they took him like it's between one and a half and two and a half million dollars. I mean, there's, it's hard to say exactly because he didn't give those numbers out, and they only recovered so much, but somewhere in that range. And did that? Was that everything? I mean, I don't think so. I would assume not, but. God, he would have had to have a lot of money at that point in time. He would have had to been extremely rich yeah. to, to have two two and a half million dollars stolen from him and right. be broke. Well, I mean, so. I, I guess realistically, he probably had everything tied up in investments. He probably that's true. Yeah, that's true. You know, he I probably mean, still you don't usually not everything you own is cash on hand. Yeah, so. that's true. That is very true. All right. Well, are we? I think this concludes this episode. It sure does. Hit them with some contact info. Okay. So if you want to reach out about this or anything else, uh, you can find me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com or milwaukeemafia.com. Nice and simple. And we will be back next week with another Mafia story. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one. 
Have a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey, podcast community. It's Eric. And I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura. That's A-U-R-A to get started today.